thinking of our theme is uncovering uh, the idols in our lives. When I, when I was a wee boy, uh, my brother and I were terrible for fighting. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. And uh, <coughs> I have to acknowledge that uh, I was probably more often than not the one uh, that was blameworthy because I was older by two years. And what inevitably happened was that uh, my wee brother would end up with a bleeding nose. And of course there was the recriminating evidence to be dispensed with. And usually by that time, the sting had come out of the argument and we were concerned more than anything else to make sure that the bleeding stopped and that there were no signs of blood on the wash hand basin because if there were, then there was going to be the inevitable investigation and because I was the, the older one, it was going to come down heaviest on me. So we had this frantic cover-up operation. Now that's many uh, more years ago than I care to uh, think of, but if I'm honest, there is still that little voice in my mind when I've sinned that says again, cover up and just go on, because it wasn't that important. And you know, when I hear that voice, and I'm sure that you can relate to this, when I hear that voice, I have to say no to that voice because covering over sin is never uh, the answer. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Uh, God tells us, as we're thinking last time when we're looking at repentance, that uh, the Christian life is under the heading of repentance. Uh, God calls us to holiness, and the path to holiness is by confessing our sin, bringing it out into the open, and repenting of it. Achan's sin was a sin God had to uncover. The story is a solemn story. It's not for the faint-hearted. Uh, we would need to give more time than we have uh, available this morning to to put this into context and to, uh, to defend the ways of God in this story. But we're going to stick to the main lesson uh, for all of us, and that is that we have a tendency to cover over our sin. And that sin, those what we're going to call functional gods, those idols that lead us away from God, they have to be uncovered, brought out into the open. We were in the book of Joshua fairly recently, uh, and when we were in Joshua chapter 4, we were considering the crossing of the Jordan, uh, how God caused the waters of the Jordan to pile up at the town called Adam, and the people of Israel crossed over on dry land, and they put up 12 stones of remembrance on the other side. The next task that faced them was the conquest of Jericho which was a walled city, well fortified. And God told them that they were going to conquer the city in an unusual way. Uh, they had to circle it uh, with the priests going ahead, uh, blowing trumpets and carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They circled it once uh, for six days and then on the seventh day they circled it seven times. And on the seventh circuit of Jericho, the people all shouted aloud, and the walls came a-tumbling down. And there was a great victory. 
And God had told the people of Israel that they were to devote to destruction, a technical term, to devote to destruction all of the city, its inhabitants, and all what they would otherwise have taken as plunder. All the goods were to be destroyed, the silver and gold was to be put to the treasury, but none of the plunder was to be taken as such. Nobody was to be enriched by the taking of Jericho. However, this man Achan defied God's command and took some items of plunder to himself. And judgment falls on Achan. Before that happened, uh, the people were oblivious to the fact that sin had taken place. Uh, Achan uh, keeps quiet about it. Uh, He doesn't tell anybody. Uh, The people have a reversal in in a fight against uh, Ai, the city of Ai. They send out a small detachment of 3,000 because they say the city is not very populous. It will be easily taken. And instead of taking it, uh, they are routed. They're sent running. Uh, with the loss of life. And Joshua, being a good leader, uh, repents. He's face down on the floor, uh, asking the Lord, why is it that you have uh, caused this terrible defeat, this shameful defeat on the people? And the Lord tells Joshua that Israel has violated his covenant in taking some of the things that were devoted to destruction. And then there is this elaborate uh, procedure of uncovering, of untangling the web of deceit that Achan has spun. Achan, who uh, said nothing when Israel's fortunes were reversed, uh, who did not let on that he had done anything which might have led to God's uh, judgment. But one after the, first of all, the tribe of Judah is chosen, and then the, the clans and the family, until Achan is left standing alone. And Joshua calls on him to confess the sin, and on confessing, uh, he faces this horrible judgment. Now, as we consider this solemn business here, there are three points that I want us to uh, focus in on in relation to our need to repent. And first of all, I want us to consider the idols of the heart that take the place of God in our lives. There are idols of the heart that will take the place of God in our lives. And secondly, I want to observe how we tend to cover these up, just as Achan did, but how God uncovers them through his word. And then thirdly, and very briefly, we're going to look at the the need to confess and repent before God. Okay, first of all then, we have these idols of the heart that are God substitutes. On the surface of things, Achan's sin was theft. He stole, he took what did not belong to him. But the sin also went very much deeper. There was something here that Achan wanted very much. And that something was forbidden by God. It jeopardized his relationship with God, and he knew that. And yet, with the Lord 
on one side and the bling from the city of Jericho on the other, he said, I'll take the bling. He made this conscious decision. He was motivated by a desire to take something which was going to lead to his relationship with God being broken. An idol is exactly that kind of thing. An idol is something which takes the place of God. So when we think of an idol in this sense, we're really thinking of the first commandment. The first commandment, you shall have no gods before me. More than the second commandment, you shall not make any graven image. We're not so much thinking of of carving out things of wood and stone. We're thinking of anything that takes the place of God in our lives, that comes before God. So an idol is a functional God. An idol is anything in your life that demands the kind of loyalty, the kind of passion, uh, the kind of thing that motivates you in the way that God alone should motivate, should call for loyalty and obedience. Uh, We look to these things to provide for us, but to provide in only the way that God can provide. If we're separated from these things, we, we feel the kind of loss which is only appropriate to an experience of being separated from God. So in every way, they're acting as substitutes for God. Go back to Achan. We find that his sin was centered on a twofold attraction. He had an eye for the fine things in life. I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia. Now you can imagine what, what's going through Achan's mind as he spots this, this robe uh, in amongst uh, the, the goods that are lying for the taking in Jericho. What a fine figure I would make going around the people wearing this robe. This robe from a, a culture, a, a sophisticated culture, hundreds of miles away. There is no one who is going to be going around with an identical robe to this one. This would really make me stand out. So Aiken's got an eye uh, for style. And he's fascinated, he's captivated by this. And then there, there was the matter of the silver and the gold. 2.3 kilograms of silver, half a kilogram of gold. It's a considerable amount. The commentators estimate that this would, uh, this would equate to a working man's wages for the whole of his lifetime. A lot of money. So here is financial security. I'll never need to work again. If I simply take this, then I have got uh, security laid up for the future. So here was style and security. And like Eve in the garden, the first sin, uh, he saw, uh, he desired, he says, I coveted. And he took. As far as Aiken's sin was concerned, the bottom line is that the admiration of others and financial security had become functional gods. They displaced God in his life. He looked for his security in a bar of gold and some silver rather than in the Lord. Uh, He wanted 
the favour of men more than he wanted the favour of God. Now, when we're thinking about this whole business of a functional God, something that takes the place of God in your life, we're not talking about anything necessarily that's, that's physical or concrete. We're thinking about what motivates you. What is it that causes you to do the things that you do? Yeah. Motivation is really important in the Bible. Something uh, is not good in itself. It's what motivates us to do good that is important. The Bible never separates our motivation from our behavior. Think of the, the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength motivation and you shall love your neighbor as yourself behavior we are motivated to love our neighbor by our love for the lord there's no division of motivation and behavior the two belong together so what are the motivations that drive us well the, the non-christian is not going to make any claim about being motivated by a desire to serve god so, in that sense, you know, he's, he's being straightforward. Uh, he will be motivated by the things that he wants most, and therefore for which he or she is willing to serve most, whether that be a desire for being popular, or perhaps it's a pride in, in the family, that's become very important, or perhaps, as it was for Aachen, a desire to be financially secure. These are the motivators for someone making no profession of following God. Now, the Christian, of course, does profess to follow God, and we confess that the Lord is the one who shapes our behavior. We worship and we serve him. We declare that he's our security. We declare that he's our hope, our reward. <coughs> yeah. And yet, isn't it also true that there are times in our life as Christians when we're under pressure of different kinds, uh, we're stressed out, and the Lord is displaced in our lives. And we're motivated by other things. Something else is seen to provide our security, our hope, our reward. And, and when that happens in the life of a Christian, to the extent that it does, is the extent to which that thing has become a functional God or an idol. So that's our first point. There's this real possibility that we can have idols in our lives, things that have displaced God and are, are, we look to them to provide the things that only God can provide. And our second point from Aiken's story is that we're very, very good at covering these things up. Aiken has a desire to cover over all his ill-gotten gains. The things that represented the gods in his life are concealed. He hid them under the earth in his tent. And then having done that, he went about life uh, quite happily. Uh, 
he was trying to merge in with all the rest. And part of the reason that we have this, this procedure of the, the people being whittled down, it's probably, we're not told, probably it was by the use of the Urim and, and Thummim, the, the divining stones that the high priest uh, would have. But God's, God is, in a sense, giving opportunity, isn't he, to Achan to come clean. But he doesn't come clean until he's left standing alone. Uh, he's intent on covering over his sin. And that's how, when Christians who turn from the true God to something else, that's how they tend to behave. They will try to cover up that thing which is operating as a God in their lives. They'll try to cover it up. Uh, they'll continue to act as though uh, it wasn't central to their living, but all the time uh, there is something there that's functioning as a God in their lives, but they're covering it over. Now this, this is a snare for every one of us. Uh, you've never heard a minister uh, declaring, I want this church to grow to be a mega church because when it does, I'll get the esteem of all my peers, I'll have more money, and I'll be uh, more influential in the, in the land. No, nobody has ever said that. But sometimes these drives, these ungodly drives, are what will drive people in the ministry. And they're covered up. We don't own up to it. Uh, we, we present our motives in religious terms and appear godly. Well, let's allow the first commandment uh, to search us, the commandment that says, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, I've adapted some questions that the, uh, David Paulison, uh, who's our counsellor at Westminster Seminary uh, in Philadelphia, I uh, wrote a book called Seeing with New Eyes, and he lists a number of questions which help us uh, to identify some of the, the, the hidden uh, gods that we have in our lives, questions that we can ask ourselves, because sometimes we hide it even from ourselves. We need to kind of uh, get things flushed out into the open. There are a number of questions which are helpful and questions which uh, the Word of God addresses. One of these would be, what is it that makes you tick? What activities bring real joy to your life and make it seem worthwhile? What really matters to you? Around what do you organize your life? Now there are things that God gives us, uh, God's gifts such as deep friendship, achievement, uh, the respect of others, health, wealth, uh, which in themselves are good, and God may choose to give these things to us. Good health, success in, in our work, all the rest of it. Uh, but he also may choose to withhold them from us. Sometimes when uh, we go through what we call wilderness times in our Christian lives, God is withholding these uh, goods from us because he has something better. He has himself uh, to give to us. We are meant to live for God and to long supremely for 
the Lord, the giver, and not his gifts. Uh, when the gifts become what we have our hearts set on, then the gift becomes for us a functional God. Jeremiah said uh, of this search for, for gifts rather than the giver, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. When Jesus is in the wilderness and he's being tempted by the devil, uh, one of the temptations is that he make bread from the stones that are lying there. And I'm sure you've wondered, you know, what would have been the harm in doing that? And Jesus identifies the devil's strategy uh, to make a divide between the giver and his gifts. Jesus is there to commune with the Father. And the devil is saying, well, break your fast and, and uh, use your power to, to, to feed your body. And the Lord replies, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Lord is the one to whom we turn to satisfy the deep longings and desires of our heart. When we displace that and look to other things, we've got a God, a false God, to reckon with. Turn things around and ask the question, what do you fear? Okay, there's what, what, what do you long for? What makes your, your life tick? But what do you fear? What are you afraid of losing? That's the other side of the coin, you see. What, what do you worry about? Uh, our, our sinful fears can expose the fact that we have cravings for something and that we're terrified of being separated from these things. What, do I, what makes me anxious? If I'm always fretting over my bank balance, if I'm always online checking how much money I have, then I'm ruled by a fear in relation to my living standards. If I'm stressed out by thinking of what people are thinking of me, then my reputation has become my God. If I lie awake at night going over the 101 things that may well be wrong with me, but probably aren't, then I've made my health a false God because I'm over-anxious at the thought of losing it. And Jesus warns against uh, such sinful fretting in the parable of the sower. The seed that falls amongst the thorns represents uh, someone who hears the word of God, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, making it unfruitful. God's word, and uh, especially when we're in the Psalms, God's word speaks about God being our refuge or our security, our safety. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here's another question. Where do you find refuge? Where do you find safety, security, comfort, escape? 
when you are down, to what do you turn as your refuge? To what do you seek comfort? And there can be a whole lot of other things. If we're not going to the Lord for our comfort in times when we're down, then we go in all kinds of different places, which all sound innocuous. We might go to chocolate, or we might go to shopping. Uh, it might be a holiday. Uh, but in, in extreme cases, we might take to alcohol. But all of these things are substituting God as our refuge in life's troubles. Who do you please? Who do you most want to please? Whose opinion counts most in your life? From whom do you want approval? From whom do you fear rejection? Before whose eyes are you living? Proverbs reminds us and reminds us repeatedly in the book, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He is the one whose opinion counts ultimately, whose favor we should fear losing. And you remember when uh, in Jesus' ministry, some of the, the religious leaders of the land are drawn to Jesus, but they're afraid to openly acknowledge him. And uh, John gives this indictment of their, their motivation. They wouldn't acknowledge Jesus openly because they loved human praise more than the praise from God. That nails it, doesn't it? Human praise had for them become a false god, a functional god, an idol. We can live in fear of losing the esteem of someone in a whole lot of different ways. We may want to please a mother-in-law or the crowd at the school. Uh, we may long for the approval of an austere father. We may be desperate that our children like us. In all these different ways, we fear the approval of men rather than of God. What would make you feel rich? What would make you feel secure, feel prosperous? What must you do in order to make your life really sing? What is going to give you full satisfaction in life? Where is your treasure? Uh, it may be that what we have our thoughts fixated upon is a holiday that's down the line or a house project which is going to make our life uh, really great. And we are motivated to do whatever we can to make that happen. And what should motivate us, what should be the driver in our lives is the treasure that is the Lord. Yeah? When Jesus told the parable of uh, the, 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 the pearl of great price and the hidden treasure, it was all about someone who was willing to forego whatever it took to obtain this great treasure. And the wonderful thing is that, you remember the merchant uh, seeing this pearl of great price goes away, sells all that he has and buys it and goes off with joy. You know, it's, it's not a kind of painful separation, but it's a joyful purchase. Uh, is the Lord your treasure? Is he uh, your great motivator? Will you gladly trade in the things, the false things that the world can give you in order to have joy in him? What do you think about most often? I find this uh, an, an interesting one and, and, and a convicting one. You know, when, when you wake up in the morning, 
and you know, your, your mind is freewheeling, where do your thoughts naturally drift? When you're daydreaming, some of us do that more than others, but when you're daydreaming, to what do your thoughts drift towards? That's an indicator, isn't it, of, of what our hearts hanker after. When we look at that, when we examine our hearts, then uh, it's, it's incumbent on us to, to direct that drift in the right direction. It's a biblical command, Colossians uh, 3, 1 to 5. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And that's telling, isn't it? Paul's saying that all these things which uh, have our mind uh, focused on them are acting as idols. They're idols because our minds should be focused upon the Lord. So what do you think about, what do you talk about? What do you talk about? What's important to you? What attitudes do you communicate in your conversation? Now, this isn't saying, obviously, that all our conversations should have a religious content. Uh, it's not saying that we should have no small talk. Uh, that would be, I think, a very, a very narrow uh, mindset that, that could only speak about theology and about church. Uh, I think the, the real Christian uh, mindset is one which appreciates the, 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 the creation and the gifts of God as coming from him and of being worthy of thankfulness. But what I think is being uh, met here is, does our conversation very naturally turn to the Lord Jesus? Uh, is our conversation thankful? Is it orientated towards God? So that whatever we're talking about, we we move in that direction without it seeming like a, a crash of the gears. Jesus says, for the, out of the mouth uh, speaks, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. How do you spend your time? What are your priorities? Uh, what do you and others do? Where are the loyalties of your heart. What shapes your priorities? Proverbs twenty three nineteen. Listen, my son, and be wise and set your heart on the right path. Do not join with those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves and meet for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. So we have all these questions x-ray questions that expose the, the functional gods in our lives. The word of God is continually uh, moving us under the surface to see what is there. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So here's what you and I have to do. We have to proactively read our Bibles and allow it to judge the thoughts and the attitudes 
the motivators of our heart. Let the word of God expose the functional gods in your life. And then thirdly and very briefly, we can't end there, can we? We have to confess and repent. We have to confess and repent. And in doing this, we don't do what Achan did. Well, on the one hand, Achan is a model because his confession, when it comes, uh, is, is, is pretty good confession. He acknowledges uh, what he did. Uh, he acknowledges that he sinned against the Lord. And our confession should always do that. It's, our, our sinning is against God. And he acknowledges that it was covetousness, that he broke, uh, he broke several of the commandments in what he did. But it was extorted out of him, wasn't it? He confessed when he could do nothing else, when he was left uh, in splendid isolation, having been uh, pinpointed by God himself. Let's come gladly to repent of our sin without someone standing over us, pointing out the contradictions in our lives, joyfully asking the Lord to redirect our thoughts and the attitudes of our heart, coming under his word. Where we've made other things our refuge, where we've found our treasure in other things, where our joy and our hope have been in things other than God. Let's confess that and ask his repentance and ask us to reshape him in conformity to his word that he might be your rock of security, your treasure, your joy, your hope. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, your word searches our hearts. There is not one of us, but is indicted uh, as your word probes and, and points to the things which we think are hidden but are in reality open to your gaze. Lord, grant that this would not simply move our emotions briefly, but that we would be moved to action. Lord, we pray that in the quiet moments that we might have on this Lord's Day, we pray that we will reflect on what your word has said to us this morning and that we might have no other gods before you. And forgive us for the sin of concealment and help us to live, we pray, before the face of God. In Jesus' name we ask.